Welcome to Almost Here, Around the Corner of Future Technology podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used. We're just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. Uh, my guest is Louis-Pierre Gravel. He's an equity partner at a firm called Robic, R-O-B-I-C.com. Louis-Pierre, how are you doing? Very good, thank you. And yourself, thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So tell me about the, the work that you do at uh, your firm and the overall work that the firm does. So we're an intellectual property boutique firm, so an IP boutique. Um, we assist clients in uh, securing their IP rights, either patent, trademark, copyright, um, as well as offering litigation support, if ever it comes to that. And we also uh, have a transactional department, so uh, a number of lawyers that will assist clients in their licensing needs, uh, so licensing in technology, licensing out, et cetera. Um, what technologies, I mean, that's pretty broad. You know, there's a lot of technologies out there. Do you deal with any of the new future ones, you know, AI, 3D printing, blockchain, that yes, kind of act- stuff? Actually, we do. Uh, we do not only for uh, patent prosecution, but also trademark prosecution and some licensing uh, deals as well. My background is electrical engineering, which uh, makes me suited to assist clients in the AI fields, as well as having a particular interest in 3D printing. Well, let's start with, uh, with AI. What kind of, um, I don't even know if you can say, I mean, what kind of interesting uh patents are coming or are there old patents that are causing problems for people that want to use AI? I mean, what's that part of the field look like? I think the field is very interesting at this point. What we're seeing is that AI patent applications um, are on the upswing in terms of the number of applications that are being filed. The main tech players are obviously leaders in the terms of filing. So Google, Microsoft, uh, Amazon, uh, are some of the big players that we're seeing in the AI field. What we're also seeing is that there's a shift away from trying to file patent applications on some of the more uh, sophisticated algorithms or machine learning algorithms. And now we're starting to see patent applications that are being filed for um, uses of AI systems in broader technological systems. So, for example, um, medical diagnosis is a budding field for AI patent applications. And now we're seeing, we're starting to see a lot of applications being filed where di- diagnostic systems are being built around an AI core. Well, if I'm, uh, let's say I'm working on an AI project um, and I come up with a, you know, a formula that already exists and is patented, will I run into trouble? I mean, I mean is it is it hard or easy to patent these formulas? And I mean, by virtue of doing so, you kind of disclose the formula, I would right. guess, right? Or is it kept proprietary? No, you're right. A, a patent application does require that you fully disclose what your invention is. And let's also keep in mind that a lot of the work that's been done in the AI field for the past 20, 25 years is issuing out of academia. And academia has published a, a lot of information when it comes to the basic algorithms, um, some of the newer algorithms also are all part of the public domain at this point. So if you're using something that is based on work that was published by 
a university research center, for example, it would be surprising uh, to find a commercial player uh, trying to block you with their own patent application because obviously the, the invention would not be new at that point. Yeah, I mean, in the world of um, algorithms and formulas, I mean, how difficult is it to get a patent? And does that really do much for you? Are they defensible or, you know, in what cases would they be defensible and what cases not? I think that's the question that many people are grappling with right now. In order for uh, a, a company to file a patent application, there has to be some worth to it. Um, you know, there's you need to be able to enforce it or license it or monetize it in some way. Otherwise, really, what's the point? And I think that's what a lot of people are starting to wonder right now is, can we actually get patent protection for the method of teaching an AI system to learn? Or can we get a patent for um, an, a novel way of, or yeah, so a, a novel way of uh, teaching a machine to learn using a specific set of data parameters or constraining the data parameters or the analysis through some specific criteria? Even if you do manage to get your patent application on that, the question is, how do you determine if someone else is infringing on your rights? Um, and it sometimes can be extremely difficult to detect whether or not the result of an AI system is follows uh, your patented uh, process, for example, or someone else's. And so there's, there is some questioning that is going on right now in terms of, is it really worth it to go ahead and patent some of the more fundamental pieces of AI technology? On the other hand, if you're using an AI system as a black box, for example, so a generic or nondescript AI system within a larger system, then it becomes a lot easier to show worth for a patent application for something like that, and two, to detect or to assert your patent rights against someone who's potentially infringing. Yeah. Can you state an example of how that would work? So, for example, um, we've seen uh, some patent applications coming out of the AI field in the legal tech domain where a company has uh, filed for, a, actually obtained a number of patents on their AI system that analyzes the internal data flow of an organization. So, for example, internal communications, um, uh, uh, internet blog posts, and things like that. And what it does is it tries to identify the potential risks in terms of a liability issue before the issue gets uh, too complex. And the company that's doing this has actually applied and gotten a number of patents on this. Now, whether or not someone would be able to detect whether or not a, a competing system would be infringing probably would be fairly difficult unless you're basing yourself on some of the marketing um, information that's out there or on some of the the news releases or things like that 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 would have been published on the other hand if you're in a medical diagnostic field and you're saying that you're building a system using an AI engine to more accurately or more rapidly detect uh, say for example uh, different types of cancers based on uh, a combination of uh, 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 in vivo uh, uh, 
samples and uh, other types of diagnostics. Well, then a competing company that is promoting their system as also using an AI engine for the same purpose um, would be hard-pressed to, to say, well, no, we're not doing what's written in the claims. You mean they would be they would have a problem? They could be uh, sued for doing that, or they no? could they could be yes if if the other limitations of the claims are also met, obviously, because in order to determine whether or not a patent is infringed, you really need to focus on the granted claims and whether or not the uh, alleged infringer is doing what is written in those claims. Okay, it sounds pretty nebulous. We can we can well, talk about this for a long time, but the 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 question of patent infringement is a question that is a fairly complex issue to answer. And what yeah. you do need is to have a good understanding of what the patent actually protects and then determine if the alleged infringer is doing what was actually protected. And depending on the scope of the claims and depending on the activities of the alleged infringer, there may or may not be a finding of infringement. It's not, it's not an easy question to answer. What about if you're uh, you know, trying to reverse engineer someone's algorithm or someone's method for determining something? You know, let's say you were, I don't know, you were trying to reverse engineer um, you know, how Google ranks websites or something, and then you sold that as a commercial product. I think the step of reverse engineering um, is probably not something that would fall under the doctrine of patent infringement because there are some exceptions in some of the major jurisdictions for research purposes. So if you're looking at an object or a system or a piece of software, and you're trying to deconstruct it to find out how it works for the purposes of research, then you're not typically going to be found liable for patent infringement. However, once you've done that, and then you repackage it as a commercial system for the purposes of making money out of it, then, once again, if what you're doing falls within the claims of one or more patents that would have been granted, you would be liable for patent infringement. Hmm. Okay. So uh, the inquiries you get, are they more of people that hold patents that think that someone's infringing upon them, or is it people that want to do new activities and they're concerned that they may you know, infringe unintentionally? Right now, what we're seeing is the inquiries are much more on the, uh, we're trying to launch this product, or we're working on this system. Are there any red flags that someone else has planted in this field that would prevent us from commercializing our system? So the, the line of inquiry we're seeing at this point really is uh, who's got patents uh, or who has filed patent applications on some pieces of technology how far advanced are they in the patenting process? And how concerned should we be at this point that there might be a risk of infringement? Okay. And uh, all right, so that's for AI. What, what about uh, 3D printing? I mean, it's a whole different beast, but uh, do you have cases in that arena and what are the issues there that are unique to that arena? Yeah, 3D printing is, of course, a bit of a more mature technology than AI in terms of the patenting field. The original patents for 3D printing started expiring five or six years ago, which is one of the reasons why there was so much hype about 3D printing a, a few years ago. The prices for the machines came down quite rapidly, making the technology accessible to um, many different people. 
the issues we're seeing in 3D printing are quite different than those we're seeing in the AI. In the 3D printing, we have a number of manufacturers that hold patent applications and patents for their machines and their systems themselves. And it's a fairly, I would say, um, uh, respectful market in that no one is really trying to step on someone else's IP rights. What we're seeing in the IP, in the uh, sorry, 3D printing world right now is a lot of development, not on the machines themselves, um, because as I said, I think we're we're much further ahead than we are in the AI sector. Um, but materials, so the different materials that are used in the 3D printers are the subject of uh, considerable research at this point, not only to uh, have materials that are more solid, um, that can be more easily finished once the 3D process is terminated or completed, but also in terms of finding um, electrical, electrically conductive properties to some of the materials in order to 3D print um, electrical circuits without having to run wires through them. Uh, we're also seeing the use of metal powders to build uh, metal objects. Um, and one of the problems there is the friability of the object once it's been finished. And so there's a lot of work that's being done on um, adding materials or uh, dopants to the metal powder in order to increase the solidity of the resulting piece. Well, what about people using 3D printers to create products without having to buy them from a manufacturer? You know, what if you provide the uh, the file that helps create an object? You know, what if you're the one that actually prints objects that are you know, so made that, by a certain manufacturer? And that was an issue that was heavily debated a few years ago. Um, and once again, I think we've seen a sort of a settling down of the uh, hype surrounding that. I think the reality is that some of the more affordable 3D printers, say anything that's under $2,000 retail, um, is probably not going to give you the finish, solidity, um, and uh, physical characteristics of a part that you would need to, say, replace um, an industrial-grade part in an automobile or a machine or something like that. Those parts still need to be printed on machines that are much more expensive than uh, consumer-grade machines. And so we're not seeing, at this point, we're not seeing a proliferation of maker uh, shops that are selling replacement parts for this, that, and the other, um, and blatantly infringing on, on someone else's IP rights. The other thing we've noticed as well is that, uh, similarly to what happened in the music industry a few years ago, the owners of IP on some of the uh, files for 3D printed parts have adopted, for the most part, um, digital rights management on the files themselves, which enables them to track, authorize, or unauthorize the printing of a given part using a particular file. And so I think uh, consumers now are much more sensitive to something like that. Um, and there's also a, a public safety aspect to it as well. Uh, if you're printing a piece in a for a, a, an equipment that may result in damage, either physical or uh, to a person, if it doesn't work properly, I think consumers probably, for the most part, won't uh, won't try to get uh, a counterfeit or an unauthorized drawing to or file to print that part. They'll probably want to go to the source 
just for obvious reasons. Right, because they don't want the liability of something going wrong and hurting somebody. Correct. Okay, that makes sense. Um, as printers get better, though, do you think it's going to become an issue again? If, uh, you know, printers you can buy off Amazon, let's say, or, you know, the, the hobbyist ones get good enough where they can print up uh, sophisticated objects? I think that issue might rear its head again, but I don't see that happening in the next five to ten years. Um, uh, because, first of all, the hype surrounding 3D printing has really died down in the past two years. Um, and uh, now we're in a we're in a stage where uh, the market is evolving in terms of what people want and can do with the 3D printers, and I don't see it at least not in the next five to ten years a rush for everyone to start buying 3D printers to have them at their home. Um, you know there are some limitations to using 3D printers. First of all, there is some acquired knowledge in operating them. Uh, sometimes it's not as simple as just uh, uploading a file and then sending the file to the printer. There is some tweaking that needs to be done. Secondly, the printers, the commercial-grade printers, are very slow. Um, you know, in some cases, it can take two, three hours for a fairly complex part to print, um, and that's a fairly substantial limitation rather than, you know, going on a website, ordering the part, and having it delivered the next day at your doorstep. Um, and then the third aspect, of course, is is just the the sophistication of the of the resulting part. Um, you know, if you've got a 3D printer that's printing layers of say 10 or 12 microns thick, you're not going to get the same quality as a commercial grade printer that can print layers, you know, one or two microns thick. Hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Other uh, other areas that are of interest that are either here or coming up on your radar. I think the other thing that's coming up on the radar, and it touches a little bit on AI and the practice of law or law firms, is that we're seeing right now quite a bit of work being done in the legal tech field. Legal tech really is, um, in, a, in a very simple explanation, any computer-aided tool that assists someone to do a task in the legal field. What we've seen in the past few years is a lot of tools using natural language processing being adopted by some law firms for the purposes of uh, searching internally, searching externally. Um, we've got voice-to-text now that is making some serious inroads uh, in some major law firms. I think the next two to five years is going to demonstrate that lawyers will need to adopt a fairly rapidly some of the more sophisticated tools that are currently being built. Just in the IP field, for example, there are a number of tools that are being tested, demonstrated right now, which assist in uh, performing prior art searches, which is something that's been done for years, but also trying to um, capture innovation disclosures within companies or within a smaller firm that has access to a pool of clients that require that kind of assistance, then we're seeing tools that are going to be used for drafting at least part of a patent application being built right now. And I think those kinds of tools will become much more prevalent um, and will uh, maybe a determining factor in whether or not a firm is able to continue to provide uh, value-added services to its clientele. 
Well, yeah, I've seen the there's e-discovery that's coming where computers can review, you know, thousands of documents or millions of them and look for keywords or themes. Um, you know, that what what other tech have you seen in the legal field that uh, is important? Do you think it's going to be widely used? I think there's contract analysis. There's a couple of firms out there that are doing some pretty sophisticated work in terms of being able to um, analyze a vast pool of contracts to try to determine which ones might be at risk of a legislative change or a regulatory change. Um, Brexit has stimulated a lot of research for companies that are looking at the definition of what is the European territory, for example, um, and to see whether or not all of those contracts need to be amended in some way post-Brexit to recognize the fact that the UK is no longer within uh, Europe as a, as a, as a region. Um, we've also seen a lot of work being done on um, some self-service uh, uh, tools for people who find that access to justice is very difficult. There's a site in the UK that allows you, through a bot, to challenge your parking tickets and has successfully challenged a number of parking tickets for, for consumers. Um, we're seeing the same kind of tech now starting to filter down to uh, basic commercial law, basic property law uh, in a number of jurisdictions, again, to assist clients that don't have the resources to retain um, expensive legal services to at least be able to get some uh, fundamental answers to the questions that they're having. And in that sense, I think AI might have a democratizing effect on access to justice in that it will enable people to have the answers that they seek um, at a relatively uh, affordable cost. I guess landlord-tenant issues would be a good area you know, for people that landlord, have access to resources. Yeah, landlord-tenant issues, immigration issues, um, you know, uh, disputes between neighbors when it comes to whose side of the property line the fence is on and who has to pay for the repair. Those kinds of issues uh, typically people uh, tend to shy, shy away from because it's just too expensive. It's not. It doesn't make economical sense to retain a lawyer to assist them. Um, with some of these new AI tools, we will probably be seeing um, a lot more people getting involved um, and becoming um, knowledgeable about a variety of different areas of the law. Another maybe like uh, TurboTax in the law in a way, you know, a, very a little bit. Yes, law. yeah, that's that's one way to do it. Yes. Another thing that we might be seeing as well, and that introduces not only the concepts of AI, but um, perhaps blockchain to a certain extent, is automatic dispute resolution systems where you would input your uh, your facts, uh, the other party would input their facts, and a, a, a smart quote-unquote system would determine who uh, is right in the particular dispute, educate, uh, for example, the payment of a sum of money, and then be able to track that through a blockchain. Okay, very interesting. So uh, where do you help clients? What what countries and um you know, what kind of clients are you looking to get? It needs to be large companies, or do you represent smaller interests? So we're, as I said, an IP boutique firm. We're based in Montreal. 
Um, and so our domestic clientele is mostly small to medium businesses in the province of Quebec. We have clients as well that we serve uh, throughout Canada, of course. And we also serve some clients um, internationally in that we would be providing advice on Canadian matters for companies wishing companies outside of Canada wishing to secure their IP rights uh, in Canada. And then, well, this is probably a pretty ignorant question, but when people are granted uh, patents, they obviously need to do it in all the countries in which they have to have protection, right? That is correct. So patents, for the time being, are still national in scope, and therefore a Canadian patent will cover you for the territory of Canada, just as a U.S. patent will cover you for the United States. There are a number of different strategies that can be used by applicants to maximize the scope of protection um, while spending uh, as little money as possible. And typically what we see is that applicants will concentrate on the main markets um, and then take the risk that someone might be performing infringing acts on a smaller market with little or sometimes no economic uh, damages. In other words, um, you know, in other words, we advise clients to obtain patent protection or trademark protection in the countries where there's going to be commercial activity um, for the first part. And then in those countries where there's a, an infrastructure present to have someone respect the rights that are being enforced. And so uh, based on those two criteria, you fairly quickly sometimes winnow out some of the smaller countries or some of the less important countries from a commercial point of view and focus your efforts on those countries where there's going to be the most commercial exploitation of a particular invention. Well, going back to AI for just a second, uh, what are the nature of the patents in AI? Are they, do they tend to be more global than other industries? Because of the uh, attitude of some patent offices towards computer-implemented inventions, typically what we've seen is that many of the patent applications are being filed in the United States, with a smaller proportion of those applications be extended to Europe and uh, China, as well as Korea and Japan. Um, those typically are the main jurisdictions where we see the patent applications being filed, um, you know, with some add-on countries afterwards, depending on, on the market. So Canada's sometimes a natural extension of a U.S. patent, uh, not that it's part of the U.S. patent, but uh, applicants will extend their patent applications to Canada. Um, and then some of the more sophisticated jurisdictions that um, are heavy in AI research. Hmm. What a, I, I, I just an idea that came out of the blue. What if you, uh, I don't know, if you had uh, some algorithm developed in India and then you licensed it from India and you put it to use in the United States and would that stop it from infringing or would that protect the person or the company in any way? Not really, because as I said, patents are national in scope, and what you're looking for is whether or not there's infringing activity in the, in the territory where there is a patent. So whether or not the uh, algorithm or underlying software or know-how is being licensed out of a country, for example, India, 
if the invention is actually going to be used or worked in the United States and there is patent protection in the United States, then that would not um, have someone escape patent infringement or liability for patent infringement. Okay. Yeah, I guess if you may, if you had a handbag, for instance, made in you know in China that you know was a, used the logo of a major company here in the U.S. and then you transported them to the U.S. and sold them here, that wouldn't protect you at all. That is correct. Yes. And so the the rights, typically the rights that are associated with IP rights are the rights to use, manufacture, sell, import into the country where there is protection the objects that are the subject of the IP protection. Okay, well, very good. Well, Louis Pierre, thank you for coming on. Uh, what, what's the best way for listeners to find out more about your firm and its services and to get in contact if they wish? So we have a, a web presence, as most firms do, so um, ca. We are also very present on LinkedIn. We have a company page on LinkedIn. I have a uh, profile on LinkedIn. We can also be found on social media, uh, Facebook and Twitter. Um, and of course, uh, you know, calling us and using the phone is also a really good way to get in touch with us. Very good. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And thank you for having me. I hope this was helpful for your listeners. You've been listening to Almost Here, Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, post to review to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.